0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of worshiping you freely in this place today. We thank you for your presence, and we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your tender grace that you pour out on our lives each and every day. We cry out to you, Father, in this congregation, confessing our need for you in this moment of worship in each and every moment. Lord, help us clear our minds of the world with all of its many and varied distractions. Open our hearts this morning to heavenly and spiritual things. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth in Your Word. Illumine Your Scripture and enlighten our understanding by Your Spirit that we may receive Your Word in such a way that You are honored and our faith is strengthened and our joy overflowing throughout this time of worship through the preaching of Your Word. We pray for power and the presence of Your Holy Spirit to come and enable us in this worship this morning. To the glory of the Father, to the praise of the Son, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I've entitled this message, Triumph Over Temptation. But first, uh, my family and I are baseball fans. Do you have any baseball fans in here? We love baseball. Uh, my son and I, uh, on his birthday, just a few weeks ago, uh, we, were, we, uh, we went to the Rangers game, and we were really impressed by this pitcher named Dane Dunning. And Dane, he pitched five innings, and he gave up only one run, and the Rangers were leading five to one uh, when the coach called for a relief pitcher. It was a great outing. But it was, it was not perfection. Did you know to pitch a perfect game. You have to pitch all nine innings without giving up any hits or, or walks. I and mean, that's so difficult of a task that it's only happened 23 times, according to Wikipedia, in all of Major League Baseball history. I mean, that's 23 times out of some 220-ish thousand games. And just if you do math, I know there's at least one engineer in the room uh, if you do the math, it's a 0. .0001% chance that if you go to the ballpark that you will see a perfect game. So don't hold your breath. Although difficult, extremely difficult in baseball, it is entirely possible for the greats of the game to, uh, to, accomplish, that, to accomplish that feat. But then when it comes to Scripture and it comes to our lives in relation to God's Word, perfection, according to the Bible, is an entirely different matter. A single covetous thought, a solitary lie, a lone word unjustly spoken. It takes only one theft or one lustful moment, and the record of your life is marred by sin. Even on our best days, we are yet sinners. Have you ever been driving to church, arguing with your spouse, and then angry at that crazy person that <laughs> you've got to repent even before you make it to uh, the parking lot? Have you, you know, even, a, even the toddler doesn't make it out of the toddler stage before they're furious at mom for feeding them vegetables and throwing all of their food at their sibling across the table. The Bible says that we are conceived in sin. This is part of our nature. This is part of who we are. David, he wrote honestly about the situation in Psalm 51. He said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, sin and rebellion is just part of our fallen nature. It's part of the human uh, condition. We're made in the image of God, but that image has been broken. and It's, it's corrupted because uh, of the sin in, in, our, in our lives. And if you just to really picture this, if you could imagine a fish in the ocean, uh, they don't even have any idea that they're wet. It's just all around them. And likewise, we with sin, we are in and among it that we can't even tell in many situations what is the difference between sin and not. I'm under the conviction if that God really truly opened our eyes to all of our sinfulness, we wouldn't be able to handle it. He's got to hand it to us one bit, one bite-sized piece at a time. Out of the perhaps 100 billion, depending on who you ask, uh, people who have ever lived, and that's a one followed by 11 zeros, there's only been one man ever that lived in perfection, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was able to live a sinless life. So when, in Matthew chapter 4... Uh, where we are today, what we see here is we see shining through the text the, the glory and the purity and the matchless power of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Here, the Son of God faces and overcomes not only the daily difficulties of life, but he overcomes the fiery trial conducted by Satan himself there in the wilderness. So let me read here out of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. May God bless the reading of his word. So as we look at this passage, I'd like to use the following outline. First, I want to talk about the preparation of Christ. Secondly, I'd like to talk about the temptations of Christ. And lastly, I'd like to talk about the triumph of Christ. So first we begin with the preparation. If you would just look at the last two verses of chapter 3, just take a look. I mean this mo- this moment in time here in the ministry of our Lord is momentous. After Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened to him, It is is as if the sky parts and reveals the spiritual heavenly realm to him, and if you remember, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends and comes down and rests on him there. And if that were not enough, an audible voice from heaven, the voice of God himself is heard by everyone there saying, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" This is what you might call the ultimate mountaintop experience. Baptized by water, the Spirit, and confirmed by the Father all at once. And we would expect to see, if we just were to assume, we would expect to see immediate and continuous glory and honor and fame. You might just think, from this moment, just hand Him the crown. The kingdom is here. You may assume that the road from here would be easy that Jesus would take victory after victory without challenge all the way to the throne. But this, of course, we know the story is not what happens. As C.S. Lewis said, the cross comes before the crown, and he must here immediately face a trial and a testing in the wilderness. So in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led, you see that? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is led into the desert country, away from the River Jordan where he was baptized, and into this dry wilderness. The wilderness of Judea is a harsh place, a dry place. It's a a desert place. It's a difficult and it's a rough place to survive. And verse 1 plainly tells us that Jesus was led there by the Spirit. For the very purpose of being tempted by the devil. Now, the word here, "tempted," has two senses. I mean, the plain sense of the word "tempted" is is, is certainly uh, the devil certainly wants to tempt him. It wants to tempt him. But the other sense is that Jesus is being led into the wilderness by the Father as a as a place of testing, as a place of examination. You see, the Father submits the Son, the perfect Son, to be examined. To be tested, to be shown as worthy, proved outwardly as pure, demonstrated to be the real thing, the Messiah. You could think of an illustration of this kind of testing uh, as, as in the setting of a jeweler. The jeweler would, will, will test the purity of the metal by the use of a testing stone, and the testing stone is a, like a flat piece of rough stone like sandpaper. And the jeweler, if the jeweler wanted to know, is this piece of gold, is it 10 carat or 14 karat or 18 karat or higher? The jeweler would actually scratch that piece of, of metal on the testing stone and then would take a series of stronger solutions of acid and drip uh, on that scratched gold. And, and if the gold is consumed, then, then that shows that it's a lower of lower purity as the higher the acid of the gold is remains there that that shows that that proves the character of the gold that proves the purity of the gold the testing doesn't make the gold pure but it shows in a demonstrable way visible way of the purity of the gold now jesus is led in the wilderness and given a kind of acid test if you will in full strength conducted by the devil himself and so the preparation is not yet complete. The test must be ratcheted higher if you look at verse 2. In verse 2, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I mean, at the end of 40 days fasting, it would probably be an understatement to say that he was hungry. Now, if, you, you, if you're if you keeping score here, if you imagine what you would be doing at this point, I can tell you I would have already failed. There's something in my family called being hangry. You know, after a few hours, you don't get a meal, and then you're frustrated and angry and just awful to everyone around you, but Jesus did not fall into sin. I mean, but think of Adam's failure, right? Think of Adam's failure. He was placed in a perfect garden. He had all the food he could possibly eat. He was in this beautiful, wonderful uh, uh, place in a, in, a perfect, uh, in a perfect setting, but he sins. He falls into sin. And now Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Jesus is placed in the desert, in the wilderness with no food at all. But yet he does not sin. He shows himself pure and faultless. So let's take a look at the temptations in uh, verse 3. And there's three distinct temptations. The first one in verse 3, and the tempter, that's the the devil, that's the examiner here, uh, came and said to him, if you are the son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I just, if, if you are, if you are. Isn't that ironic? Because God had just said out loud for everyone to hear, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Everyone heard it. The devil tries to create doubt again in the, in the, in the word of God. I mean, just, just like in the garden. Did God really say Did God really say he's up to his old tricks again? He's trying to create doubt. Jesus, why why are you suffering? If you're really the son of God, why are you out here and, and miserable? Why are you suffering? Would God really allow you to go through these things if he loves you? And that's probably a lie that we've all heard from the devil from time to time. You're the son of God, Jesus, really? Okay, where's your servants? And, and, and where's your palace, and where's your caterer, and where's your, where's your waiter, and where's your buffet line? Where is it? It doesn't look like you're the Son of God. Why are you hungry if God loves you? If you really are the beloved Son of God, why are you suffering? The temptation is clear, that Jesus would doubt the Father's love for him, and that he would go outside of the Father's will and attempt to to satisfy that real need in a sinful way, that he would uh, distrust that the Lord would provide, that, and Jesus could have done it, he certainly could have turned, he could have turned uh, stones into bread, but he answered in verse four, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He came to show us by example what that look like. And he's saying, yes, I may be hungry at the moment, but I will trust God to provide. Jesus here, he takes up the sword of the Spirit, and he quotes the scripture. He actually quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 8 to the devil, where Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. If God wills for you to live, bread or no bread, you're going to live. If God wills that it's your time to die, bread or no bread or anything else in all of creation, it will be your time to die. The power of life is in the hands of God alone, and Jesus demonstrates his trusting God Israel, who, if you remember in the Old Testament, who grumbled and complained, and they wanted to go back to Egypt, and they failed. They, they thought if they didn't have immediate food and, and, and water, that God did not love them. Jesus, however, humbles himself and trusts in God and succeeds where they did not. So the second temptation in verse 5 of Matthew 4, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's as if the devil is saying, I see you trust God. Did you see that part in Psalm 91 where he said, yeah, you know, he won't let your foot strike against a stone? Well, you better jump and prove it. You better prove God's love for you. It says right here in the Bible that if you, that, that if you jump, he will catch you. So why don't you have God show us a sign? Just show us a sign of his love for you. And then no one can, can doubt. He, he's tempting Jesus to seek for a sign, to force God to act. Catch me, God, and prove your love for me, demanding a sign from God by leaping from the temple to be caught by the angels. And Jesus says in verse 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's taking up the words of Moses from the story of Israel in the Old Testament Again, in Deuteronomy 6, where it, Moses says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as, he test, as you tested him at Massa. And Massa means testing in the Hebrew because it was the place that Israel stopped to grumble at God on their way out of Egypt. God's, God had rescued Israel from slavery. Um, and, and, and they came to Massa and there was no food or, or, or water and they, they demanded a sign. You remember Moses struck the rock at Horeb and water came out of it. Jesus overcomes the temptation where, to, to test God where Israel had failed. So the devil, not ready to give up, he's going to go for broke. He's going to pull out all the stops. He's going to bring the big guns to the examination in the third temptation. In verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, there's no more subtlety. There's no more games. The devil gets straight to the point. Just bow down to me and I will give you everything. Fortune and fame and, and all the kingdoms. Think of the glory, Jesus. No more desert trials for you. No more obscurity. It'll be straight to the palace. What's the temptation here? Of course. It's to skip the cross, to, to skip over uh, the, the suffering and the death and the resurrection, the mocking, the spitting, the crown of thorns, the beatings, the nails, the, the brutal and humiliating crucifixion, the piercing sword, and the grave. The devil is saying just a quick bow and it's all yours. There's no need to go through all of that. Just a little wink and a nod to evil and we'll be done with all of the nastiness isn't this a common temptation for us today? That old serpent still looking in for ways to trick us and to fool us, to give a wink and a nod to evil so that we can avoid discomfort or displeasure or people irritated with us or, or those who would scoff at us or laugh at us. Just a little wink and a nod and just sit here and, and bow and bow there to the, to the wills and ways of this world and we'll be done with all of the nastiness. Jesus himself, maybe he was thinking, he he taught on it in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Bowing to Satan or to the world, or anything else but to God the Father, was not an option for our Lord Jesus. Jesus knew he must suffer. Jesus knew that he must die and be raised. This was the only way to bring salvation to lost sinners like you and me. The only way to make a bridge between sinful, fallen humanity and a holy and righteous and perfect God. There was no other road possible, and Jesus chose the narrow road, leading us by example. And besides, Satan is, is the father of lies, and the kingdoms of the earth are not his to give. Uh, he only temporarily possesses what he has. We know in the final accounting of things that even Satan will ultimately bow his knee and confess Jesus as Lord. And lastly, we look at the triumph in verse 10. And Jesus said to him, "'Be gone, Satan, for it is written, "'You shall worship the Lord your God, "'and him only shall you serve.'" Again, Jesus is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses warns against idolatry and the worshiping of, of other gods. In Deuteronomy six thirteen, Moses says, "'It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear, "'him you shall serve, "'and by his name you shall swear.'" And Matthew tells us in verse 11 that then the devil left him. Jesus, by faith in the power of God, had resisted all the temptations and the flaming darts of the devil. And our Lord prevailed over every single one. Jesus alone shows himself matchless in perfection. He took that acid test full strength. He faced every temptation on overdrive uh, that we would face in this life, and he conquered them all where we fail. You see, God of eternity, he stepped down into a moment of history, putting on flesh and lived as we live, and he suffered how we, as we suffer, and he was tested and tempted as we are tested and tempted. No king, no ruler, no power, no authority ever has, has, has given the law and then willingly put themselves under it. That's, that's against the rulers of this world. Uh, the, the ones who make the laws are, are often hesitant to, uh, to obey them are, themselves. But our Lord Jesus, the lawgiver, he, he spoke the law and he realizes that we have no ability in ourselves to keep it and he comes and willingly puts himself under the law to keep it on our behalf so that by faith in him we can be saved. Verse 11 ends with and behold angels came and were ministering to him. I mean God hasn't forgotten for a moment where his son was. He hadn't forgotten for a moment what his son needed. God the Father didn't forget about Jesus in the wilderness. And the moment the testing and the trial was over, the angels came and gave him everything that was needful to him, everything essential the Lord God provided. So let me point out just a couple of truths that we can take from this text and apply directly into our lives today, and then we'll be finished. We, too, face the tests and trials of life. It's a promise. There's no way around it. The tests and the trials, they will come. If you're not in one now, just wait, there'll be one. There will be one coming. But we have to remember that God has not left us or forsaken us. 1 Peter 4 Peter says, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The Father saw fit uh, to, to give tests and trials to his own son. Why should we be surprised when trials and tests come into our life? We shouldn't be. We are promised that they will come. And these tests are opportunities for, for, for God to grow us in our faith, to, to, to show us what, uh, what is happening in our hearts, what he's doing there. When we face life's little temptations do we serve our pleasures or do we stand firm and serve the Lord God? When this happens, do we give in to sin and give a little nod and a bow and take part of it? Do we buy into the lie that it's just a little bit here and, and just a little wink there uh, and we'll land that promotion or that business deal? Or, or, or it's just a movie, it doesn't matter. Or it's just a website, nobody sees it. But God knows, God sees. Do we forget, momentarily Forget. As James said, that f- friendship with the world is enmity with God. See, the problem is, in that moment, we're giving up the greater blessing of a, of a relationship with, with God for an immediate sinful desire. And, and sin is like a crouching lion that is ready to pounce and, and devour you. So it's not if, but when the trials come to your life. What will shine through? Will it be the love of Christ, the joy and hope, the power of the Spirit, made known to to all who see your life to the glory of the father and to the praise of the son when the trial comes into your life when the test comes into your life how do you respond secondly we are empowered we're not left in this alone we are empowered by the holy spirit to resist temptation we have to remember that as christians we have a new identity in christ we are new creations in Christ Jesus. He has set us free from sin, but we are not set free yet of temptation. Christ has broken the power of sin over our lives such that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have freedom and we have power not to fall into sin. But it's, it's not from some deep reserve of willpower of our own strength. But it's only possible by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives lives, in our hearts, in us. First Corinthians ten, thirteen. no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what do we do? We cry out to God and ask him, in that moment when we're facing the trial and the temptation, we realize that in our weakness, we have the chance to be strong, not in ourselves, but in a call, in a call out to God, in a prayer that God would help us, that God would sustain us, that God would see us through in that moment. And God may even allow us to face a temptation and a trial just for the express purpose of teaching us to pray and to call out and to trust in him. James says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The tempter gets mighty uneasy when the Christian begins to pray. And lastly here, the gospel. You see, we are not perfect, but he is. When we come to Christ, we come as sinners. Forgiven, redeemed sinners, but, but still Sinners. He told us in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we're also told by the Apostle John that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. So we're in this in-between. Our Lord Jesus understands, and he fully faced our trials and temptations, our faults and his failures, and Jesus is not surprised by any of them. But Jesus, at this very moment, has his hand extended extended to you, ready to pick you up, ready to lift you up. Uh, From the middle of that that sinful temptation, all we do is is have to pray and call out to him and avail ourselves of the power offered through uh, Christ. There is nothing that you can do that will take you outside the possibility of forgiveness in Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The promise of the gospel is not only that Jesus resisted temptation and overcame and defeated sin, but by his sinful life and death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, that he also defeated death. And that faith in his perfection, faith in his good works, but faith in the way of salvation offered to us through God. God will account the perfection of Christ onto our account. That we stand, when we come and we stand before him as we all will do, that, that God the Father will not judge us based on our faults, but by faith he will see the perfection of his Son. Let's pray together. Father, We pray that you would teach us and help us to see Jesus as perfect in power, as the one who can be trusted in the name above every name, Lord. That you would teach us what it means to truly trust in Him, that you would show us by your Spirit what it means to be sanctified in Christ, that you would grow us in Christ's likeness, that you would help us to walk with you, that you would help us stand firm in a world that would so desire to compromise us and turn us away from the truth, Lord. But by your blessed hand, by your spirit power, that you would guard and keep your people and that you would grow us and draw us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask it. Amen.